On the show this week, we discussed all the action from the recent League 2 Tri-Series and where your team is positioned ahead of the run home, plus a wrap of Uganda's tour of Namibia and a preview of the women's Capricorn Tri-Series. But first, a shout out to our friends on Patreon. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. Up next, plenty to discuss in the Emerging Game. It's been a big week in the emerging cricket world, and we have it all for you on the podcast this week online and on Sport FM in Perth. Nick Skinner, Tim Culler, and myself, Daniel Beswick, to discuss it all. First, some not great news as we record this evening. Current Netherlands men's head coach Ryan Campbell is in ICU after suffering a heart attack on Saturday. Uh, the 50-year-old felt chest pains and difficulty breathing while out uh, with his family on Saturday in London. We heard about this over the course of the weekend. Tim, you were informed. Um, it's been strange news to kind of come to terms with for us. And you, Tim, being a, a former colleague of Ryan's, uh, you know him very well. You're a good mate of his personally. First of all, how how are you feeling about it? It was just something that, that, that really came out of the blue. Someone that we know very well has done a lot, spoken a lot on the pod and, and spoken at lengths about cricket and emerging cricket in general. It was uh, strange news to wake up to. Yeah, I got a call on Easter Sunday while I was sitting down to lunch here. I'm just speechless. I've been sort of flat ever since, just feeling for Leontina his wife and, and his family there crazy to think that you know it happened whilst he was in the, the playground with his kids and it was just by chance that a, a lady near Ryan had done her CPR training only days prior um, and he sat down lay down apologized and got up again she saw he was in distress and, and came and, and helped him yeah um, as you said as we go to record now it's still un- uncertain he's been operated on and didn't awake from his induced coma the first day when they tried so he's starting to breathe by himself but they're going to try and wake him up further today so look, one of our friends has jumped on a plane from the u.s to go over and see him and i think there are a number of us thinking about doing the same it's just tough with logistics and the way of the world at the moment which i think is probably getting the way a bit but you know it's just tough to know what to do in these situations really you know you're going to go over there and just add weight to the kind of the emotional baggage but what can you can you do for help and it was good to see the the news that got out on Tuesday from the family in Perth you know and it was good that people can remain somewhat lighthearted in these situations saying you know we all know what Cambo is like he'd probably want to live stream this if he could hates being the center of attention but it was good to get some details out to to people everywhere because you know I was just talking to a friend in Hong Kong just saying that he says Hong Kong's a dark place at the moment with with this news and I said well I think there are a lot of a lot of shadows in a lot of corners of the world these last few days after hearing this news because you know I consider him one of my closest mates in the world and, I, and, I'm, and I'm sure I'm I'm one of many that he, he plays a special part in their lives so can only hope that doctors work their magic and he and he battles out of it but uh, yeah just just devastating and I think it just sort of re reiterates I think we had the same conversation when I think talked about Dean Jones you know a couple of well a year and a bit ago is that it just reaffirms that, you know, you always got to tell your friends and people around you how special they are to you and what they mean to you because there'll be, be moments like this where you, you start second-guessing second yourself as to your hope that your people around you know how important they are 
to you and have you told them these things so i guess that's the the ongoing message throughout all of this and there's been some teary phone calls with some close mates around just not just everyone's in in shock and we I, I, and i hope this is as bad as it gets i hope we it gets better for him and and his family and then we can do everything we can to support them but yeah just shocking news and for a guy who was so fit looked after himself and so active for this to happen in a playground playing with his kids yeah but yeah, we send our our thoughts to to Ryan and, and his family and and his large network of friends. And you know, from an emerging cricket standpoint, he has played such a a big part in his coaching and his playing, um, his outlook on on both life and and cricket. And we hope you know that he pulls through. And we will um, provide you know all the all, all the news as it sort of comes to hand. But we we send him and his his family all the best. It's been uh, a big week of emerging cricket action last week we talked a lot about uh the findings of of icc board meetings and and thankfully to bring it to actual cricket on the field it's actually been good to watch cricket on on various streams uh around the world we'll go to league two first of all and scotland uh went on a clean sweep of the recent cricket world cup league two leg in uae between PNG themselves and Oman. It was technically a home series for PNG, given that they haven't been able to play any of the the home cricket in Port Moresby at Amini Park. But Scotland, probably the form team of the tournament on the pathway to the Cricket World Cup qualifier next year in Zimbabwe for the tournament in India. They won all four matches, as mentioned before, moved to second on the table past UAE and beating Oman in in two close encounters, both of them holding on. Probably a testament to to the grit of of Kyle Kutz's team. Kyle's back in the runs as well. Uh, and they look probably the most complete side outside of probably Callum McLeod, who's still struggling for runs. They look a pretty good unit with the bat. But let's talk about the series in general. And the League 2 race is starting to hot up. Oman winning two matches out of four, just sort of ticking along. Only have four matches left to play, but all away from home in uh, US Tri-Series coming up, one of two that the US are hosting. Um, to start with you, Nick, it looks as if Scotland are the form team at the moment. PNG don't look great, need to turn it around before they move into that playoff where they are joined by the other three teams that finish uh, in the bottom four of the seven, plus the two Challenge League winners. We'll get to them in a moment, but it does look as if it's currently probably Scotland's tournament thus far. They only need to finish in the top three, but they're probably the best side on paper at the moment. Yeah, I mean, this this kind of goes back to what we were saying about how unhelpful it was. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why binning the Super League is a bad decision, but just the fact that this tournament now, the the sort of the sting at the top is really taken out of it because, I mean, Oman, as you say, at the top of the table with only four games in hand, Scotland chasing hard, uh, UAE, Namibia, Nepal, all, all in the running, um, and the USA, of course. So just the fact that there's, there's no competition for that top spot and it's all about the battle to get into the, you know, the top three and, and directly qualify for the qualifier, yeah, it's just some of the some of the spice goes out of the at the top of the table. Scotland, as you said, looked really good, and, and I mean, you know, they could easily have gone the other way in both of those games, and we'd be saying, you know, Oman won four nil, and and look, you know, they they solidified their lead at the top. But I think, as you said, it's a testament to Scotland's just winning capacity and and the fact that they have that kind of mental edge that you know comes from being at this top level for for a number of years. You know, they've beaten uh, four members a number of times. You know, to the point where if they do play against, for example, a, you know, a Zimbabwe or, or even a Sri Lanka, maybe it, w- it wouldn't 
be a huge upset if they won. It would be kind of like, okay, they're a good team who, who are doing their job. So, yeah, Scotland, definitely the best team at the moment in this tournament. Oman, yeah, as you say, ticking along. I mean, I think they've pretty much got a top three spot sewn up. And, you know, as I just said, the, the top of the table fight is kind of irrelevant now. So, um, that that's a, more or less what they care about. That logjam, though, intensifying because uh, <laughs> all the way down to number number six on the table, we've got all the rest of the teams except for PNG are all kind of vying for, for one or two spots if we assume that Scotland and Oman are probably guaranteed at this point. You know, anything can happen. Let, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But, you know, that's four teams fighting for one spot. So, it's going to be a, 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 a tough battle. And I guess at the other end of the table, in terms of uh, potential relegation, I guess we don't really know what's happening with, with League 2 going forward um, after the next cycle. So, uh, that's kind of a question mark, but you, you would assume that um, if there is going to be relegation, it'll probably be the last couple of spots. So, um, yeah, at the bottom and at the top three is where the, the real logjam and, and fight is going to happen over the next little while. And, yeah, PNG, I guess we can talk about them in a minute, but, gee, they, they looked ordinary in that, you know, <laughs> won, won a couple of games over in Nepal and, and we thought maybe they'd turned a corner, but I guess there was a bit of a false hope there. Yeah, and it's impressive from Scotland because they haven't played ODI cricket since last year. They were in Oman when the Sultan died and, and also in the UAE when there was rain about because wherever Scotland goes, there's rain. So the, the fact that no no games were rain affected in this this series, they should be really happy. But Scotland, I don't, I don't know, would you call them an ageing side now? I think the core of that side's been consistent for half a decade now, hasn't it? Yeah. And we'd say the same about Oman, but I think it just goes to the approach from a conditioning point of view, but also mental conditioning as well. You don't see them out there as a as an old team. Um, they still look fresh, and the way they played in the World Cup was really impressive, and the way that they've carried this through. You know, we've, we've talked about previous series giving us a bit of a marker as to where Oman was and where the UAE was, you know, how, how strong we thought UAE was coming out of the World Cup qualifier. But look at this, it's, there's a real gap between these three teams, you know, PNG losing all four, Oman only beating PNG and losing both games to Scotland and Scotland winning both. And yes, Oman's had a lot of cricket of late, so maybe they're getting tired, but it really is, d- does show where they are in the pecking order now, really impressive from Scotland. And, and like you mentioned, great to see Cole back in the runs. He ain't the youngest, and I can only imagine that every little run of form where he's not scoring where he knows where he can, that those doubts, whether you like it or not, are going to come in a little bit harder, aren't they? So that was really good to see. And a number of these were played as night games. Were they all night games or just some of them? Uh, they were all day-night games, yes. That can't be cheap. <laughs> to be playing six associate ODIs all under lights, that'd be a pretty penny. So I, I wonder what's driven that, whether that's the money coming from the sponsorship deal um, or what. But that was good to see. But the fact that I was up on the other end of the time scale and to see Hamza Tahir come around under lights, of which I'm guessing he hasn't played a lot of his cricket until the last sort of couple of years. But even so, you know, he's played mainly day cricket for Scotland. Come and take that catch to win that win that match. Excellent to see. You know, when the pressure comes down to it, those moments. He didn't look too sure under it, but it doesn't matter when it goes into the hands. But uh, very impressive uh, from Scotland. And I guess from their point of view, you know, what are we? We're sort of six months before the World Cup. So they've got 
a little bit of runway, but it's a good bit of momentum to see them back into, well, 50 over form for them, but to sort of international cricket and, and moving forward. So impressive. The only thing for me is the next sort of two to three years as we get into this sort of more regular cycle for World Cups is where's the next Richie Barrington coming from and, and who is that and, and who are we going to see come through? Because you'd hate to see them get to a PNG position or perhaps even Oman where they're just, they're stretching their, their uh their old fellas a little bit a little bit longer than they they'd want to and they've got not not people coming through so i just hope there's some renewal happening in the background yeah it's interesting i, I think their bowling is a lot younger than their batting you know the, the that top order as you say yeah kutzer obviously mcleod barrington you know those guys are all all on the um on the older side of 30 whereas they've got uh, Mark Watt, Hamza Tahir, both in their early 20s. Uh, their, their bowling is kind of the, the younger side of the, the team. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes and, and kind of looking ahead over the next couple of years as the guys like the Mark Watts kind of transition into being the, the senior guys and, and some of the, the batters uh, retire or age out of the team. Um, but yeah, that's that's in the future. At the moment, they're a, a very tight unit. Just looking at that, well, the, the two thrillers, really, they great quality cricket to, to just to watch you know the the first one against oman 215 for scotland and and ayan khan with 60 odd for oman almost got them over the line but as you said that that catch from hamza tahir and then uh, oman set 225 in the second game and scotland eight for 226 in 49.5 overs Patty at the top for for oman did well, um, and but uh, yeah, Barrington, Munsey in the lower order got Scotland over the line. Mark Watt, as we said, digging them out of trouble with 30-odd not out. I think probably his highest score in one-day internationals. Um, I, I just think Mark Watt, throughout this whole series, has been such a great competitor. Um, him and Tahir especially, you know, with the left arm spin, it just helps so much knowing that they have that 20 overs of, of just really tight bowling and then, you know, go from there with their pace bowlers. Um, Gavin Main was one who hasn't played a whole lot for Scotland uh, in, in recent times, but uh, yeah, had a good series with the ball. And uh, yeah, so I think their bowling is kind of, that's where you see the renewal happening at the moment. Um, and, and I guess you, the, you know, where, where are the next lot of batters coming from is kind of the, the question to keep an eye on in the next little while. Yeah, Chris McBride made his debut for Scotland at, at 22. We didn't really know too much about him. Uh, didn't quite have the the debut to remember but he's definitely a name that we'll see a little bit more of mark what proving his medal as a, a quality lower order sort of batting option i think he he had a couple of knocks of of note during the t20 world cup too so he he really enjoys the 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 heat of battle especially in the middle and yeah getting them home in, in one of those thrillers against oman oh uh, well we will talk about png eventually but i think just as a, as a final sort of wrap on on oman and this is probably relating to the, the chat about Richie Barrington. Richie Barrington probably makes a case of being one of the best associate bats in the business at the moment. We know Erasmus, uh, when 100% fit, would, would be in there too. And we've got some news in regards to him as well a little bit later on. Jatinder Singh is approaching 1,000 runs in the competition. Mm. And, and I know that he's played 30 matches in there. And he, his average is only 33, which is... I suppose a testament to the way he plays. He's very much do or die, score or no score in the way that he approaches things. But the middle order of that Oman side almost frees him up a little bit where he can kind of play that role. And in this series, he he was clearly the best bat that Oman had, probably the best bat of the series. Made an unbelievable 100. Would have made another one had he not picked out a a short mid-wicket after a long hop in one of the PNG games as well. Looking at Oman's team, 
I think that they've definitely put all their eggs in the in the 50 over basket. I mean, they've just had the double drop of not only not making the Super 12 phase in the last T20 World Cup while hosting it in Oman, they've then gone on and not qualified from the A qualifier for this year's T20 World Cup. So I think now very much so 50 overs should be the focus for them. And we know they've only got one tri-series left and that's in the USA They'll want to win probably one or two more matches just to make sure they can finish in the top three. Whether or not they've done enough already, it remains to be seen. It does look as if they're a better one-day side than they are a T20 team. And even without a Kibelias, they played fairly well in this in this tri-series. They will lament, you know, dropping both those games against Scotland. But Ian Khan is someone who won me over a little bit with his play. Uh, the left-hander looks really classy, a good mix of power and touch. Zishan Maksud is, is reliable in the middle order as well. You'd probably think they've done enough to qualify it and finish in the top three. They do have a nervous wait before they, they get there, though. Between them and Scotland, you would think that surely one of them would, would provide the biggest challenge come the, the Cricket World Cup qualifier itself. Well, yeah, it's interesting that the top couple of teams here are, are as, as Tim was alluding to, um, just a, a little bit on the older side. Your point about Jatinda Singh, I, I think, is a good one. You saw he was struggling for form at the start of the year uh, in that tri-series in the UAE. He, he kind of was, he was pretty scratchy, but, it, you know, towards the end, he looked like he was finding his feet a little bit. So now he's, he's um, you know, he's got back into his stride, which is great for, well, for spectators in general, you know, he's, he's great to watch. Um, I think the other one from Oman, just going under the radar, was Bill Al Khan. You know, just casually picking up thirteen wickets in uh, in four matches, Standard. as he as he does with his uh, left arm Yorkers. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I, don't, I haven't looked at the stats, but he'd probably be close to the top of the wicket tally as well there for for Oman. So he is by a long way. By the way, he's taken over sixty wickets. <laughs> oh wow! Well, there you go. It does help that he's played thirty matches, but yeah, he's uh, far and away the leading wicket taker in the competition. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, two plus wickets per. match match is a pretty good return for for any bowler uh, and where to for png uh, top three obviously completely out of the question now it has been for a long time but the important thing is that there's still a lot riding on their matches in that they need to find some sort of rhythm some sort of game plan some sort of blueprint for when they eventually move in to the playoff now They'll meet the other three teams that don't make it from League 2 into the qualifier playoff. They're then joined by the winners of both of the Challenge League groups. Looking at those Challenge League groups, there's multiple worthy challenges that they could face in there. Uganda being one of them, Canada on the other side. There's just no semblance of any sort of plan with the bat. The bowling is keeping them in the game, and we know how PNG make up their team. They're a squad where they've got six, seven, eight bowling options and someone will go with the ball, but Asad Vela has a number of options to keep their side in the match, whether it be through pace or, or through spin. CJ Amini's class, they're, they're taking wickets. They're taking enough wickets to, to be relevant. But looking at the batting and outside of Asad Vela, it's, it's pretty grim. And looking at the numbers this week, Chad Sopa has the second highest average of PNG batters currently in League 2. And he's essentially being thrown in when they need him to kind of fix something up. You know, he's one of the few players in that squad who's played longer format cricket, so he knows that once they're in a bit of a hole, he can kind of patch things up. But just digging through the numbers of PNG, it's not good reading. And just going through sort of their, their batting order... Uh, Sese Bao, 139 runs at 11.58. 
Uh, Legacy Arca, 323 runs at 16.15. Tony Euro, 352 runs at 18.52. CJ Meany's been good. Charles Meany's been good. 26.4 is averaging with the bat, scoring 476. He contributes a lot with the ball. He probably gets a pass mark with the bat as well. Kipling to Riga, keeper, 120 runs at 10.9. It's just not great reading. And there's no one really knocking down the door from domestic cricket because we know that they don't play a, a terrible lot of 50 over cricket. They have put a lot of eggs in the T20 World Cup basket, in, in T20 cricket's basket, and they can still qualify for the, the World Cup in Australia come you know the end of the year. But in terms of the 50 over game, I, I don't really think we can expect anything different if there's no one really making a case of coming into the team with the bat. They don't play enough 50 over cricket. Them qualifying for this competition in the first place, we've described in the past as a miracle. And, and you know, we don't think of many things as miracles in, in cricket, especially in associate cricket, but that result probably is one of very few. Do we expect... Could we expect, why should have we expected anything different from this PNG side, Tim? With all due respect, I don't think one win is a fair reflection. They're probably worth maybe three or four, but I mean, they've only got themselves to blame in all of this. We know things have been difficult in the transition between Joe Dawes to Carl Sandry. That's, I think we can we can all say that from the outside, but just what's the answer? Where's the answer? Because I just don't see anything changing anytime soon. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. I know we've we've talked about this before, but those numbers you've you've read out are, are really dire, and you could blame some of the results on COVID and a lack of gameplay. But we can go pre-COVID when they had not won a game before we saw the world shut down for the games that they played, especially in the states in, in 2019. And I'm looking down those same numbers you are in any other side. These figures are getting you dropped. You're not playing as a as a specialist batter. You know, Ceci Bauer is that, that example there. Um, and then we flip it around and say, as you mentioned, the bowling has been good, but one of their best bowlers, you know, we haven't seen for a few months in Nasana Pakana. I, you know, we, I don't think we've, we've got any information about him, whether he's got the got the yips or whether he's carrying injury or, or who knows. He's definitely around the squad. He's travelling with the squad. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I think it was his birthday recently and they were all celebrating it. So I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and we've... I think we. I don't want to go over old ground so many times when we talk about them, but there's a real issue here about about renewal and and, and who's coming through because unless someone's going to completely change their game, you know, Tony Ura striking at 80, yeah, that's great for for one day cricket, but he's averaging 18 and a half. That is not someone at the top of the order that you can be relying on and building an innings around. So what next? You know, as you said, you know, Chad Soper up there with an average of almost 30 and a strike rate of 60. You can only move him up the order so far. Let's call him your Mr. Fix-It character. Uh, and I guess you could say that Peter Saylor's similar in the Netherlands. You know, he was a middle to low order batter who's worked his way up or moved himself up. I guess when you're captain, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> but to be a kind of a middle order batter, and he's played some really important innings. So for fear of going over old ground here, I think you know we've got to be seeing those players that were talent, well, that are talented from the under 19 squad coming in and and getting chances and being stuck with because look at what you're, you're up against here and as talented as they may be and as long as they've been in the squad, you can't continue picking a guy who's averaging 16 at 67 in, in 20 matches who plays as a, spe- a specialist batter and that's a, I don't want to pick on Ceci Bauer for that. I mean, it's, a, it's a guy who's been there for a long, long time but you're much better bringing in a young guy that can uh, stick and stick with and grow. And you mentioned about you know how it's 
then about looking forward to well cup qualification and whatnot and we don't know what's going to come out of the the back end of this event you know originally when the cricket world cup league two was launched you know the winner as long as they finished higher than the bottom finishing team in the super league in the world cup qualifier they had a potential of of going up but it also was wasn't as simple down the bottom of, of simply the bottom four going to the the world cup qualifier playoff you know if you finish in the bottom two you were the two teams that were up for relegation and you needed to finish above those two challenge league winners but who, who knows what's what's coming you know we've had all the news from the icc recently about the revised men's t20 pathway which is interesting considering the next one's in, in in 2024 and it's strange because we've actually got a pathway before the pathway begins but i think it's important for the ICC to start talking about what the pathway to the 14-team the 2027 World Cup is going to look like because you know there's a general feeling that a lot of the focus, and when I say focus, I mean funding, is going to move away from the bulk that it is focused on 50-over cricket and be balanced more between 50-over cricket and T20 as the global growth vehicle, in inverted commas, but also men's and women's participation numbers moving to be more balanced. But my point is that... It's really important for these teams to know what they're fighting for because we talk about how, you know, there's the top three that go straight through to the World Cup qualifier. It's really important for these bottom four to actually know what they're playing for. And yes, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, we're just going to try and win every game. But we also know how much the sands um, below the feet of the, these tournament structures sometimes can change, can shift to mean that it's really tough for teams trying to plan. And especially if you're a team in the Challenge League, and I speak from personal perspective here, if if we know that the top team from the Challenge League can still go up to a, a League 2 ODI and there's three times as much funding, then you know it's going to tune certain decisions. So I hope we, we find out collectively sooner rather than later what is coming next because this tournament and although we're talking about PNG sort of only worrying about what's coming um, down the line you know if they go through unbeaten from here there's a chance for them climbing out of that bottom two and you, you, you never know so there's still a lot for them to play for but on the other hand you've, you want to be seeing the next generation coming through and there's there's a lot of opportunity for, for talented kids coming out of the under-19 squad that's for sure. Yeah and I mean look if you're Thinking about how the under-19s guys might go, I mean, yeah, you, you talked about Ceci Bow. Can they really do worse than highest score of 29, averaging 11? Like, realistically, the only way is up, really, if, if you're looking at these guys, if, if they have any kind of talent. Uh, just sort of lingering on these numbers a little bit, <laughs> Asad Vala has faced 1,125 deliveries. CJ Amini's next highest on 698, so... For starters, your you know your main batter is facing seventy percent more deliveries than the next guy, and then third is Chad Soper, which I mean, again, <laughs> when when the guy coming in to sort of hold everything together at number eight or nine or wherever is facing your third most number of deliveries, you've, you've just got a real problem. And <laughs> it's you know you talked about his average. It's not just in this tournament. He has a higher career ODI and list A average. Uh, and indeed, first-class average than Tony Ura, and you know Tony Ura is thought of as a batter and a you know a destructive batter. And I, you know even in that game against Scotland where he hit, I think it was like I think it was forty-five or maybe got to a fifty. I can't quite remember, but you know he looked dangerous. You know there's flashes. He hit twenty-five again off about sort of fifteen balls against Oman. You know so he he looks he can do it. He can hit the ball, but there's just no. 
they're not building innings. And, you know, that goes back to that, you know, number of deliveries faced. And I, I just can't help wondering if this is another consequence. I mean, obviously, PNG's talent pathway has, has a lot of issues, but scrapping the Intercontinental Cup, they don't have any more long-form cricket. They they just don't have the habit of batting a long time. Uh, they, they play very little domestic 50-over cricket, so they're just not in that kind of framework and they don't have that, uh, you know, practice of... of just batting time and, and batting out an innings. And I, I think it really shows because as we've seen, these guys have the talent and they have the they have the shots, but they just don't have the discipline to stay at the crease long enough. It's an interesting one, isn't it, with the I-Cup gone? And, and I think a lot of cricket fans in general would probably place 50 over cricket more towards T20 cricket than it does to first-class cricket. But when you look at it... F- through the associate lens, you would almost say that, yeah, if PNG were to almost take a, a page out of first-class cricket's book and, and bat a little bit more time, they would probably win more games than they do. If this was the old World Cricket League, they would have been relegated twice in the last two years. Just the way that they've played, I mean, even if they win it four and over for the first 40 overs and got to 160, scored 10 and over in the last 10 overs, that's... 260. I know it's a very simple game when you break it down, you compartmentalize it like that. But I don't know. I think there's just, you know, there's something that could be said about, you know, just the lack of longer format cricket that they just don't play. And I think, I mean, I just, I watch, when I watch PNG play, just, there's just no direction and, and just a lot of swing and missing and just a lot of false shots, bad shots, and bad shot selection. And then. In comparison, you know, every other team they seem to play against seems to make it look rather easy. They can still turn it around, and and now they've got the awkward scenario of, well, now's the perfect opportunity to throw some kids into the deep end and and give some new life into that team. But at the same time, you know, they've still got to get to, you know, the the Krieger World Cup playoff and and put in a good enough performance where they retain one-day international status. And then it goes back to the point that Tim makes, you know, what is one-day international status after this the cycle we don't entirely know what comes of that and you only have to look back to 2019 and how ODI status plays such a big part in the development of cricketing countries look at Hong Kong look at Canada in the, in the last two years we've heard next to nothing about where they're going and the challenge league has suffered as a result of COVID we just don't really know you know what the next step is for either of those two places so you know things have to change and they have to change fast and PNG need to look at it from the guise of well yeah league two that part doesn't matter but they need to find some results just to remember how to win again and to get to the, the playoff with some sort of rhythm and momentum to, to ensure that you know they don't face the, the, the dire state that, that Canada and Hong Kong are currently experiencing. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective and we've heard, well, especially Norma Vanua on the, on the podcast back in, in 2020, sort of in the middle of lockdown, talk about how much, and I don't think he was just paying lip service, but how much they want to play red ball cricket and how much they enjoy it. But that I-Cup, well, the most recent <laughs> I-Cup, I don't want to say the last I-Cup, but, uh, you know, PNG only won two of their seven games in that and came second last. You know, seven games, two wins, four losses. So it wasn't that they did that well, but then they also finished in the top half of the World Cricket League Championship for that series as well. So I guess you can read into that what you want to but it's it's a big question but I, I think I don't know is there any point talking about it anymore I think long format cricket red ball cricket in an associate tournament is gone isn't it look at how much you know more ODI cricket is being played and, and with a 20 team T20 World Cup you know they, they put the offer out there for a shared cost model to play I Cup and, and what did we get we got 
was it three countries or four countries that put their their hand up to be interested and it's very hard to sort of make that sustainable and have a, a, a level of interest so as we've debated numerous times before about what full membership you know as much as we don't like the, the levels of membership but what that means for the, the next generation of them you know how many of those sides are going to be wanting to play test cricket and how many of those sides are playing test cricket now that have that have been recent full members so it's a it's a tough question when on one side we know how much skill it brings into the game by playing longer format cricket but on the other hand who's going to pay for it ah just another question for the powers that be in international cricket let's have a chat about uganda and their tour to namibia a successful tour you would say for Uganda, although Namibia got quite a bit out of the three T20Is and the two one-day matches as well. Of course, the one-day matches, not with one-day international status because Uganda don't have one-day international status. They managed to jag one of the T20Is, Namibia winning the series 2-1. Uh, they also won the second of the one-day matches. A couple of common factors in both the victories across the formats, Dinesh Nakrani, uh, as well as Riazat Ali Shah as well with the bat. But a couple of uh, emerging names on the bowling side two for Uganda, and we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, not great news for Gerard Erasmus. He's broken his hand while batting. He got hit by Cosmos Kebuta, who's uh, emerging as one of Uganda's young stars. It's the same hand that Erasmus had his finger broken uh, in the lead-up to the T20 World Cup. So that's not great news for Namibia, and hopefully everything is good there. But let's talk about Uganda first. <laughs> Dinesh Nakrani, uh, not quite facing the Seychelles on this occasion. <laughs> you made quite the point of that uh, with some of his figures. But you've got to say, if someone was to ask, was it a case of Namibia being bad or Uganda being good? I think you would probably make the case of it's just Uganda uh, slowly developing as one of the emerging names in Africa. We know that Namibia had, had rotated a few names and, and a few people around. But overall, I think this was more of an indication that Uganda is certainly on the way up uh, in the emerging circles. Yeah, absolutely. They looked a lot better than they did last year uh, when they were soundly beaten in, in all the matches. Um, it wasn't a full-strength Namibia, as uh, um, Coach Pieter Brown was, was quick to point out on Twitter. But, um, you know, even the fact that Uganda were able to get a couple of wins against a, a you know, still a pretty strong development side from Namibia is, is noteworthy. Uh, yeah, Nakrani's bowling... Um, mm, I guess if you're going to tweet about being at the top of the bowling averages um, after taking a bag against the Seychelles, you know, you, you, <laughs> pride comes before a fall maybe. But he, he batted very well. Um, so that, I guess, is probably, you would say, his main skill uh, in the team. And he's more of a kind of part-timer with the ball. Um, and yeah, batted really well. Got Uganda over the line in, in that T20I victory. Um, I think yeah, poor old Erasmus, same hand. I don't, yeah, geez, maybe should he have gone a little bit longer before he came back into the team? I don't know. But yeah, Cosmos Kiwuta, as you said, one of the um, examples of, of Uganda's improved performance, he looked just a little bit quicker and he's getting good bounce and a bit of zip off the pitch. I think he's going to sort of grow into being the leader of the attack. Uh, Simon Sasazi with the bat. Got a couple of good half centuries, got them over the line just about in the uh, in the the, the one day game, uh, which which we can get to, and yeah, Juma Miyagi as well coming through from the under nineteen setup. Um, yeah, so the the Uganda bowling lineup especially is, is shaping up quite well. I'd say they probably need a little bit more depth with the bat. Um, you know, too often it is either Sazazi or, or Nakrani or, or Riazat Ali Shah down down the lower kind of middle order 
digging them out of trouble. But uh, yeah, certainly at the Challenge League level, I think they'll be a real handful when that series actually gets underway. Yeah, they're unbeaten in the Challenge League thus far and, and showed no real sign of, of slowing down. And and one note on, on Juma Miyagi, who dismissed Gerard Erasmus in, in one of those T20Is. I think it was the same one where he did actually get hit on the hand. Uh, by, by the way, Gerard Erasmus making an unbeaten 100 of, of something like 47 balls in a T20I and Namibia losing to Uganda. I don't think many people would ever have mm. sort of imagined something like that. But just to bring it back to Miyagi again, he was one of the, the fines of the Under-19 World Cup for Uganda. I think he took 13 wickets in the tournament and looked really good, even against some classy opposition taking some wickets against some pretty strong sides. So there's definitely a pathway there for, for the likes of Miyagi and other young baby cranes heading in towards the cricket cranes fraternity they definitely seem to be a side on the up and, and talking to people uh who work quite a bit in, in ugandan cricket there is a lot of positive signs around the place um jj smith had possibly one of the best individual performances we've ever <laughs> seen in the t20 international and he did somehow manage to move up the t20i all-rounder rankings which is crazy given that he was already well within the top 10 looking at the at those numbers Quite a, a big associate representation, actually, in those in those rankings as well. But he took six for ten with the ball, including a hat trick, and then seventy one off thirty five balls, and and they won markedly in that in that third T twenty I. I mean, how many times, how many podcasts have we mentioned that JJ Smith can hit and hit long and hit into the middle of next week, becoming a senior figure of that associate side, but. Tim, looking at you and looking at this Namibian side, a little bit of rotation. JP Cotts has come out of retirement. We know they had a bit of trouble at the top of the order in the T20 World Cup. You'd like to think that that would be a nice remedy. Assuming Erasmus is, is fully fit come, you know, three, four months down the track. They're another side that they feature in League 2 that we didn't really talk about who have found it a little bit troubling, but they've got plenty of home series down the track. There's a, there's a packed calendar for Namibia. How do you kind of see where, where they are at the moment? We, we probably talk about them as the best associate side, but, but Scotland probably could make a case for being that given their form at the moment as well. Well, it'd be good to see them playing against each other apart from uh, in World Cups. And don't forget Trumpleman, the batter. As he is now. Yes. Didn't bother delivering the two one days. It's almost like they listened to me putting up the order. <laughs> and you talk, you talk about Erasmus's finger and perhaps he'll take a rest for a while. You know, Namibia have got a five-match T20 tour of Zimbabwe approaching in a, in a month's time as well. So it will be interesting to see whether they... It's called rushing back because any broken bone... You know, you, you're talking four, six weeks, aren't you? Especially in your hand and Erasmus's. Yeah you know, gummy hand. So you'd think they'd want to be taking their best squad there to really be getting ready for the, the World Cup, where in this case, isn't that strange? Namibia is going to travel to Zimbabwe to play a T20 series to help their full member brethren get ready for a World yeah. Cup qualifier. Mm. And T20I rankings are very important yeah. given the qualification path. Great minds think alike, Daniel, because I was thinking about the results we've just seen, that it was a... Is brave the word the Namibia with a sort of an understrength side going in a in a series against Uganda potentially putting their rankings at, at risk when the rankings could potentially be so important, especially if Namibia are pushing up on that low double digits towards the World Cup. And, you know, you never know. They might snare a few wins and, and go through to the, the next round again and get into that top eight. We never know and we can only hope. But I, I thought that was an interesting decision. But, yeah, like, as you were saying, they've, they've got a assuming they'll have everyone fit as we get up to the 
the World Cup and these sort of latter League Two matches that are again still so important they've just got to get their order right because they're, they've almost got a PNG problem, haven't they? They've got a, a team of all rounders and uh, they just need to try and get the right order and have people doing the uh, the right things at the right time. And the wicket keeping issue and top of the order issue and whether we see Kotzer come back in, but you know, he's, I think he's just got to get fitter because they've got a lot of cricket coming up. They've got those series and the series in Zimbabwe mentioned a World Cup and then a, a lot of ODI cricket. So I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to get him on the, the fast track back to be able to bat at the top of the order for some long innings because uh, we, we saw them struggle with, with Zane Green in the World Cup and, and before that. And I think that's probably where they're, they're weakest. You know, they, they, they just get stronger and stronger as you go down the order. And Vise, JJ Smith, Trumpleman, my man Trumpleman. But <laughs> you can't be relying on your insurance policy down the order. You know, you've got to be your big guns up top. So whether we see a change in the order or whether we see some of those old names come back to the top, whether it's a Kotzer or a Green, uh, it's going to be interesting. And then also what they do with the bowling, because I think it sort of feels like they're still rotating, trying to find, a, especially with spinners, but trying to, trying to find a, a sort of a comfort level, which I guess is good in that they've got a couple of good ones there. But you'd like to see some semblance of consistency as we come into a World Cup. Who'd, you know, a second World Cup for Namibia in a couple of years is great. And great, it'd be even better to see them do better than they did in Oman. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you talk about JB Kotsa and, and his fitness. He was rested for the two one-dayers, which, I mean, I don't know if that's more of a, a rotation policy to, to give Lawrence a couple more shots at the top. And he was pretty good in the second game, hit 40-odd and looked solid. I remain convinced that we haven't seen the best of Zane Green at the top of the order. I think he's he's got a lot of shots. He's got a lot of energy. He played really badly in that um, T20 World Cup, but I, I think he's got the talent to do it. He just just really lost the plot. But yeah, a lot of options in terms of the wicket keeping. As you say, it's sort of where do they go with all their bowling? Dylan Leicher was another one who came onto the scene, made his T20I debut after a, a dominant performance in the domestic Richelieu T20 franchise stuff. He, I don't know, yeah, pretty basic right arm seam, gets a bit of bit of nibble through the air and, and um, you know, in, in the first, in the first of the one days, he was, he was unplayable, got three for six off, I think, five or six overs and uh, had, had the Ugandans playing and missing and, um, you know, could have easily taken a few more. But most of the other games, he looked pretty ordinary. So, yeah, I don't know if he's, how far up the pecking order he is with, you know, Namibia's seam bowling stocks. Uh, just to... Quickly run over the the two one days. You know, Uganda collapsed for sixty eight in the first match, which Namibia chased in in seventeen overs or so. Uh, but the second match was a, a sensational upset. You know, Namibia posted a, a solid uh, two hundred and sixty seven in their fifty overs, and Uganda chased it in the last over with three wickets in hand. Very exciting match to watch. Our, our man Riazad Ali Shah with forty three not out off of thirty six hitting Frylink long over mid wicket to you know. It's always good when you, you bring up the win with a six. You know, it's just very satisfying. Um, and Simon Sasazi as well at the top of the order with 82. So I think Namibia would be pretty disappointed they didn't win that. They dropped a couple of catches towards the end. Uh, Frylink dropped a, a very regulation chance off Riazat Ali Shah in the second last over off poor old Tangeni Lungameni who went wicketless and uh, wasn't looking very happy. Uh, Frylink then had to back up and bowl the last over and, and got swatted over the fence uh, to, to lose the match. So a match to forget for him, but very impressive stuff from Uganda. And it'll, as you say, it'll be interesting to see how they go in the Challenge League. I think also seeing where Namibia goes uh, against uh, Zimbabwe will be an interesting barometer and um, both in terms of uh, what their squad actually looks like and, and who gets on the field, but also you know how competitive are they? Because they absolutely pummeled that Zimbabwe uh, emerging side 
that toured last year, but that was not remotely close to being a full-strength Zimbabwe side. Probably wasn't even really a full-strength A-side or anywhere close to it. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see who gets on the park for Zimbabwe and, and um, you know, the idea of the rankings is, is quite interesting there, Tim. I think it it's just shows a, a positive um, kind of view from Namibia in that they're, you know, they're hosting Uganda who, if they were being cynical about it, they might think, well, we don't really have much to gain from this. Why bother paying to host a team that we can, we you know, we, we will lose ranking points on potentially. So I think it just shows they're practicing what they preach in terms of, um, you know, they want more opportunities against better teams and they're giving other associates in the region a, a run on the park as well. So, you know, a big tick from me. You mentioned the status of the games, Bez. Yeah, it was a bit strange. Both of the teams have list A status and the comms team yeah. thought they were list A because they were celebrating Craig Williams when he hit 90-odd against Uganda in that second game. They were celebrating Craig Williams reaching the 5,000 list A runs mark for Namibia, which is a great achievement for him when he gets there. But according to Crick Info, he, um, the, the matches didn't count. So who knows? And um, I guess one last little point I would like to bring up is uh, Salomon Nyoma, who was added to the side for the one day, as came through the, the Volfus Bay development hub. So it's good to see some talent coming through from outside Vintuk, which has been a challenge for Namibia over the, well, over the, the whole time, really, as a cricketing nation, is that given so much of the, the population centre and the infrastructure is in the capital, just finding talent, you know, out, out in the regions is, is quite difficult. So, yeah, it's just a, another tick for their development programs. Uh, pretty standard kind of right arm seam, but Lohan Lauren's got a really sharp stumping in the second one day, uh, keeping up to the stumps. It bounced up uh, off the pitch a bit more than Fred Ashlem was expecting, and he, he overbalanced, and Lauren's got it down in time, so that was good. Yeah, but as, as you said, Tim, a lot of cricket coming through for Namibia over the next little while, um, both in men's and women's cricket. Uh, Zimbabwe and Namibia playing quite a bit of cricket. I'd be very intrigued to see that T20I series between the two if they both play close to their, their full 11s. And yeah, as mentioned, with T20I ranking points potentially up for grabs, it might be a series where both teams give it a bit more of a focus. But to bring it to Zimbabwe, they're sending a team to Nepal as well, uh, as well as South Africa. And the women have got a, a tri-series coming up with Namibia and Uganda, the two teams that we were just talking about. So African cricket well and truly buzzing at the moment, beginning as this show will be live to the world. So a number of these results will already be run and done. But looking at the women's tri-series, Nick, quite competitive in terms of, especially between Namibia and Uganda at previous African qualifiers, not too far away from Zimbabwe either. How do you kind of see this tri-series playing out? Yeah, played over a week in Vintuk with everybody playing each other three times plus a final. Zimbabwe, you would say, would be favourites. Namibia and Uganda, Namibia only beat Uganda by four runs, yeah, as you said, at the African qualifiers last year. And Uganda weren't too far off chasing uh, a total against Zimbabwe in the semi-final. I think they lost by 14 runs, which, you know, they, they weren't a million miles off. They just didn't quite have the batting depth to get over the line. Yeah, batting will be the key, I think. Uh, Zimbabwe, in that African qualifier, you saw they just had a little bit too much speed on the ball. You know, uh, players like Josephine Nakomo, Esteban Bafana, uh, Numvelo Sambanda with the left arm angle, you know, their, their seam attack was just that yard quicker than anyone else at the tournament. And they are able to really keep a lid on regional opponents. A flotilla of spin options, you know, Marange, Piri, Granger, Mushangwe, all quite good. Um, and a couple of those double up as, as all-rounders. So, yeah, for the weaker teams in the region, batting is often the weak point. So, Zimbabwe, 
have the bowlers to exploit that. Modesta Mupachikwa, Marianne Masonda, Precious Marange as well have a bit of power with the batters. So, yeah, Zimbabwe definitely the favourites there. Arasta Dierkhart, I think, is probably going to be the, the key with the bat for Namibia. Young batter, she came through the same regional development program kind of up north as, as Ben Shikongo, but really good technique, really solid looking batter. I think she'd be a, a, I think she'd be a great red ball player. Um, unfortunately, associate women barely play one day cricket, let alone you know multi day cricket. So that's that's kind of a shame. But uh, you know if she can stabilise an end, it allows Namibia's hitters like Adri van der Merwe and, uh, and Kayleen Green to to go a bit bigger. Maybe Sune Wittman, but she hasn't really you know produced much. Of late, so yeah, hopefully she can find some form. Irene Fansale, who we talked to almost probably a year ago now, actually last year's Kwabuka when we interviewed her. But uh, yeah, the skipper leading the attack with with you know with some seam. Victoria Hamaniella is a threat with some off spin. Sylvia Shehepo, Wilka Motile, handy seam options as well. Um, Uganda, I think, will definitely rely on their bowling more than their batting. Konsi Weko um, as a great trivia answer. She's the only woman. Uh, with two T20i hat-tricks, uh, one against Kenya and one against Cameroon. So, um, keep that up your pocket if you ever go back to being a, a quiz master, Bez. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she she's arguably their, their best bowler, or at least best spin bowler, you know, with, with some, some handy leg spin. Um, but, yeah, only three batters in Uganda's, in the whole time they've had T20i status, have ever passed 50. So, you know, that's certainly a concern. And when one of those was a century against Mali, um, who, yeah, with, with all due respect, probably playing cricket on easy mode. Um, yeah, going to be uh, an interesting series. I, I Yeah, as I said, I suspect Zimbabwe will probably win, but I, I don't think they'll win every game. They, I reckon they'll probably drop a match, one, one or two matches. By the time you listen to this, half of this tournament will be already run and done, but Thankfully, uh, Nick will have you covered with all these retrospective predictions that will ultimately come through fruition. The matches of the tournament will be streamed via Women's Creek Zone and on the Cricket Namibia Facebook page as well. So do look out for that. I think that's everything in the emerging game, boys, for the week. To keep up with news and events from the Games New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket wherever you are on social media. And of course, keep up with all the news at EmergingCricket.com. But for now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Cutler and myself, Daniel Beswick, enjoy the rest of your week wherever you are around the Emerging Cricket world.